0: yeah so I, maybe before we I don't know did you were you about to say something right I thought you looked like you were gonna say something
1: I can if you want I wrote a whole spiel well, <laughs> well no <laughs> please
0: <laughs> yes I want to hear it
1: <laughs> I hope I don't mess this up because like it's only a little bit so I wrote the Hobbit tells a whimsical and adventurous story of an quote-unquote everyday a well like petty bourgeois person becoming an epic hero during his mentorship from Gandalf uh he is able to overcome trials and tribulations throughout Middle-earth at Hobbits um, didn't think that they could possibly ever rise to the occasion um, from trolls to dragons we learned that anything is possible if you are willing to learn grow and even lean on your friends or community uh, when you need help that being said in the age of late stage capitalism in the constant pursuit to turn the earth into money making machines we see how a story of community and friendship and personal development can be bastardized into a story by sanitizing the broader message and hyperfocusing on selling action, gore, romance, all for the sake of profit to the houses. Yeah,
0: we could just end it here, guys.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's a great way to summarize it. That was awesome.
1: Sit so back in your seats, get something to eat, and watch this movie. Don't let the kids see
2: it, because well, we'll let you hear the video. Differ-
0: thank you. All right. We are here tonight on Left of the Projector. I'm your host, Evan, and we are going to be discussing the Hobbit trilogy. And we uh, have a group of Tolkien Marxists to discuss this. Marxist Tolkienists? I don't know. Something like that. (laughs) So I got Nick from uh, Intervention Podcast, Mike from the Turn Leftist Podcast, and Hungry Rye from other episodes on Lord of the Rings. yeah! Thanks for having us, man. Yeah. Thank you. So I was thinking about this book, you know, from a perspective of being like a, a kid's book and I wondered everyone's sort of just memories of this book. And I wondered if this is actually everyone's like first gateway into ever reading Tolkien. Cause I feel like it probably is for most people, given it's a little more approachable. So I wondered what your thoughts, memories, whatever you got.
2: Yeah. I mean, for me, it was absolutely that. Um, I remember going to Barnes and Noble, and I think I said this on the podcast I did with Mike on like Tolkien from the left, just Tolkien generally. But my aunt and uncle took me to Barnes and Noble when I was five, and they got me The Hobbit. And I just remember sitting in that chair, like reading it. And now I'm a 30-year-old man with a uh, Lord of the Rings-themed tattoo on my back. So here I am.
3: Hell yeah. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Brian, did you want to go? Sure. I
1: remember like the film's coming out like lord of the Rings films and then the hobbit movies came out i remember seeing them on but i didn't know much about any like the books or anything until like my young adult life and i picked up the hobbit and i started reading it and was like oh my gosh this is everything i could ever want in like a high fantasy book and it was crazy that it's like so appealing to adults and also it can be read by children like the audience of people that can consume this and enjoy it. it is wonderful to me so i really like the hobbit what's my favorite piece of tolkien's work I been this
3: far. yeah i found the hobbit after the movies and the uh the original books and um i liked the hobbit a lot i thought it was great as just like a standalone story and then it was like only years later that i heard that they were gonna make three movies out of it and even before a single even trailer came out i'm like that just sounds cash grab to me and i just i just was immediately disappointed but um I do I just love it as a story and I think it really works well and I could see I was kind of disappointed when I found it as an adult that I hadn't read it as a kid because it seems like a really good story to to get at that age um but yeah it's it's just great and I'm kind of I think we'll get into that theme that it's kind of disappointing what they do with the three movies but
0: yeah I think those are all so from my memory of the book I had a copy when I was younger as a kid but I didn't really get into it I just I wasn't really as much into that kind of fantasy type of content. And then when I read it, maybe when I was older and enjoyed it. But then I remember when the movies came out, you know, years after that thinking like, Oh, this is going to be sweet. And then I saw like that it was actually going to be three movies. And I had seen all the Lord of the Rings on like opening night, you know, when they came Mm -hmm. out and was really enjoyed the first Hobbit movie, which I don't know what everyone, we'll, we'll talk about each of them. I actually really enjoyed the first one. I feel like it was pretty fun. And then it just continuously went downhill from there (laughs) literally just yeah i mean well the problem with
2: the movies coming out as they did and i think it was almost exactly 10 years after the lord of the rings trilogy came out was just with how it was presented it almost seemed like they really tried to replicate that experience of a family going to see the lord of the rings every year at the cinema around christmas time and it was all you know a cash grab i mean i could have seen and like we'll get into this more i could have absolutely seen them stretching it out to kind of expand on some of the things which some of the things i think they expanded on to make connections for people that hadn't read the books i think they were well done and actually made a lot of sense but to expand it into three three hour movies was just way too much for a 250 page kids' book as an introduction to the world, really. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're definitely going for the same level of excitement and obviously profit as the original trilogy. Like, I don't know what they expected to get from the first one. They knew it was going to be popular. I think they just were, you know, imagine if you were 10, 12 years old when the first one came out. Now you're, I don't know, 2022. I don't know. You'd still be into it. I I mean, I, I still saw them in the theater. I didn't see the third one in the theater, though. I say that as someone that did replicate all those things.
3: <laughs> I
0: mean,
2: as someone that got sucked into it, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
3: I I did want to ask, like, since we're already talking about the whole cash grab aspect of it, is there a way that it could have been done right? Like, is there a way that you could have done, I mean, I guess the way would have been just to do one movie, but is there a way you could do three movies of The Hobbit and pack enough of the actual lore in there that it's justifiably three movies long?
1: I think it would be been better as two like a duology
2: hundred percent
3: yeah like the fact that you had in the third movie which we'll talk about
0: so much of it just like in even in the original trilogy you had a lot of battle you know content battling and fighting and you could have dialed that down by about 75 percent, and had it be two movies because that was the most that was all of the third movie it was just fighting Mm -hmm. and
2: to compare it to the lord of the rings off the bat I think where it really benefited in that scenario, if you look at like the Two Towers or Pelennor Fields and Lord of the Rings is that in the books, you've almost got six books in three and one follows, you know, after the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers and the Lord of the Rings, the first two books. So it'd be book three and book five really follow Aragorn, Legolas, Merry Pippin, right? And then four and six really follow Frodo and Sam, but that doesn't make sense in the context of a movie. So you're able to intersperse some of those battle scenes with really substantive things that are going on with Frodo and Sam and Gollum. Right. Yeah. Whereas in this, it's like, you can't really do that because it's all one story. One, you know, the characters are all in the same place at the same time.
0: They tried though, because They reached to having like Gandalf and other characters do other things that weren't actually happening, which we'll obviously get to. And what sucks is that they actually
2: really nailed some aspects of it. And those parts that they got extremely right got diluted by the things that they screwed up. Like to bring up Bilbo, I think they really nailed the character of Bilbo. I thought Martin Freeman did an excellent job portraying it. He really encapsulated the character of somebody like Rise, you said of like kind of finding themselves throughout this journey and finding themselves, you know, maybe to be better than they ever thought that they could be in the context of community. Um, but I, I feel like even Bilbo's character who, I mean, it's called the Hobbit. It's about him gets kind of superseded by some of these other Grander arcs that I feel like we're really forced in this, for again the sake of spectacle in the box office.
0: Agreed. I um, I think maybe before we talk about the first movie, I know that you know Ryan, you Nick both have a lot of knowledge on the lore. I'm kind of maybe it's worth without going, you know, into into some detail. You know, kind of like maybe the context of some of the characters that we're gonna see like the dwarves obviously are the bulk of the people in this people, both the bulk of the race that's involved in this quest. And then obviously they encounter the elves and there's the orcs, but I think it's maybe helpful to understand the context because in the movie they really create a um, rivalry, a deep seated hatred actually, I think between the dwarves and the elves, which is not present in the books. And I'm wondering how that actually played out in sort of pre-Hobbit history and then feel free to also include anything about you know other characters um neuromancer i know you want to talk about morgoth <laughs> I mean, we don't have
2: to go that far um but maybe we'll see where this comes up and right feel free to interject anywhere but i mean just in terms of like the conflict between the elves and the dwarves i mean one thing that you have to remember in the context of this so like there's two different basically subsets of elves that appear in this, right? There's like the Elrond group, which in the lore are called like the Naldor, right? And then there's the Legolas, uh, Thranduil sect, which are like the Sindar, right? And the dwarves historically, just as I'm going to really oversimplify things, they really got along historically with the Naldor, who are Elrond's people, because they were all like more craftsmen, right? And like there's deep historical ties there and everything like that. So they, that's why in the book, I think that maybe it comes across more as indifference more than anything. And there was some events in the history that would have led to some conflict between the dwarves and Sindar, but they don't really even manifest themselves in the lore to the extent that they do as in like, well, Thranduil didn't help us in the fight against Smug. That is like kind of totally manufactured, for the sake of building that plot line, especially as it manifests in the third movie and everything like that. Right. So, you know, there's stuff that's there, there are conflicts in the history, but, but, in the specific people that show up there, I don't think, I think they really played on some kind of past historical events that were even different between these two people to kind of bring that, about more than anything. Right. And I think the other thing that you have to remember in the context of this whole story is that Tolkien had been building this world prior to The Hobbit was written in 1937. And he speaks about like starting to kind of formulate this world and what it looked like and some of the characters and themes even before World War One. So I don't even know when he started writing The Hobbit that it was necessarily intended to fit in this universe but eventually he found a way to kind of make it work which is why not everything is fleshed out as it possibly could be in the text and they were able to draw on some of that in the movies because by the end of his life there was some semblance of a finished product or a finished thought which his son christopher ultimately fleshed out but ultimately when tolkien puts this out there's a lot of vagaries, I think, even still in his mind as to the entire backstory of the Hobbit and how it fit into his entire universe, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and no, I hear you.
1: Yeah, he took a lazy way out, well, like Peter Jackson or Gullier Mel and signed off at the beginning. Um, because like the Elves and the Dwarves had always had like a Wendy, like a millennia long conflict since their creation, because the elves were created by that aluvitar which is like the ultimate creator whereas dwarves were created by Ilay i'm gonna get to that i know that's not correct um but he was a lesser deity he wasn't supposed to be creating anything so they they were always So there's always like that antagonism in that respect but it wasn't what was in the films and it felt like a very easy way to try to depict it like oh it almost like moralized them rather it being just like just part of their creation i don't know it's does that make sense?
0: They had to create antagonisms for a movie. And in some sense, I get it. But it's but at the other sense, it you could probably do it without that. Right? Like if, Especially if there was two movies instead of three, which we can count how many times we say that.
1: To... There could have been like an extended edition where they tracked about the history. Like just some little segment where they just gave a little five minute spiel on like, and hey, this is how we all came into being. But they, they just don't do that. Yeah, and it's frustrating. But also with what you were saying about how like Tolkien had like sussed everything out, like that's hundred percent because the original copy of The Hobbit, um, in the chapter what was it with Smee in the Dark, it was supposed to just be a gift. Like the ring is just supposed to be a magic ring. It wasn't going to be this evil ring that tied into Sauron. Sauron wasn't even like an idea while he was developing The Hobbit. So he had like reconcile these issues. That's why modern issues have that in there um
0: so how does that then work with like the neuromancer necromancer i'm gonna i said that wrong in my notes too well, tolkien the necromancer really like
1: big, oh you're good <laughs>
0: no i'm just saying like how does that then fit in if did he alter it later because it fit into the, the larger because you're saying that I sauron doesn't guess, exist no. quite right but it is the same yeah. character
1: i think it's important to keep in mind that like tolkien when he was creating his like pseudo-history or theology of like England, like his mythology um he pulled a lot from like victorian and gordon storytelling and necromancers have always had like a really interesting story behind them all like depending on which necromancer story you reach from different regions in the world right. so i think he just pulled in with like oh yeah sorcerer like a maya like mithrandir would be going and handling a, on his own adventure I, and I think he found a really clever way of like tying it back in because he didn't have a body. So he's like, oh, he's going to be an necromancer, like raising the dead, which like orcs were like zombie corpses. So it kind of like, it works out that way.
2: I think that's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I always just kind of interpret it in that context in the same way where I think he had an idea of maybe what to do with this character, knowing that he had this entire history behind him. But in that moment, you didn't know fully how to describe it. I mean, I don't think Sauron is referred to the necromancer at all, really, in The Lord of the Rings, maybe passingly so. But they're understood to be the same character. But I think that also plays into a little bit of the finding out who this, what this entity is in The Hobbit because even like Gandalf and Galadriel and Saruman and Elrond don't really know at the time. So it is kind of just like this vague evil entity. And I think that actually play that actually fits well with how this all plays out, both in the movie and in the lore, where they're trying to suss out what this evil is. They have a little bit more to go on because they obviously, obviously know the history there. But that ambiguity, I think... Is actually real in both cases.
0: I mean, I think it just the fact that this comes out after the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, as often happens. I feel like they make the prequel after the success of the original. So there's obviously also all the tie-ins that they decided to do with characters from.
1: And felt so fan see to have that scene with the Necromancer and Sauron and Galadriel and Elrond and again all fighting at the same time. It doesn't. Yeah. Fit well in the films i don't know how you all feel about it but it just felt awkward
0: i think the first movie itself in general was pretty solid in terms of they lifted a lot of the dialogue straight from the text like i think they did in the first one and i you know i was actually reading this reread the hobbit last last week so it was fresh in my mind but i think that they set it up pretty nicely so i don't know i i think the first the, the kind of the beginning of the first movie and gandalf and you know um the one thing I will say I did not like about the first beginning of the first movie was having Frodo in it. I feel like that was stupid. Yeah. I
2: mean, aside from that, the first movie, even inclusive of that error, which I agree is an error and just like fan service to say, hey, look what we're doing here. Even inclusive of that, it's still the best movie in this movie trilogy. And I, I really think it does have to do with the character development. Some of the scenes that you see, like the dwarves coming into Bilbo's house at the beginning. I mean, that's all very spot on how Bilbo acts in that situation, how he starts to build courage up and even how he starts to find by the end of that movie that he has courage and he can do something in the context of like working with all these other people, I think makes a lot of sense and was actually pretty powerful in terms of looking at his character. But yeah, I mean, it's just, It's far and away most accurate and the best. And I think those things aren't unrelated.
0: (laughs) Now, I I wondered this too, because I was trying to think about intentionally, like thinking about the first movie and some of the, like you think of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you think of like the ultimate quest, which is, in an oversimplification, is to destroy the ring. Whereas in The Hobbit, they do slightly alter like the concept of what their quest is. Um, between the book and the movie, I wonder what you if you think that's the case, and if you know because the idea for for just sketching out some of the plot is, you know, Gandalf goes to see uh, Bilbo because he's going to be using his house as a meeting point for a number of dwarves, including Thorin, uh, Oakenshield, who is going to be is basically the you know king or leader of the dwarves. And now is going to use him as this burglar person. It's not really defined early on what that really means exactly to essentially go get all the gold that's in their own home in the Lily Mountains that is now being watched by a dragon of smog. I feel like in the book, they didn't really bring out further depth to that story of actually like regaining kind of like their title and their kind of their glory that's kind of added in the movie, but maybe it's for the best because it kind of makes the quest more grand. I don't know what you guys think. It's
1: kind of you get into like those themes of like to restore the kingdom is to restore peace. Like we saw like throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy with like Aragorn becoming like the king of Gondor again. Um, But this is like Thorin's like quest to be able to reclaim what was stolen from them because Smog is essentially like a capitalist and he stole all their surplus volume and he worked so hard to create. So they are unionizing and getting back what the fruits of their labor. That is my reach for the night.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean oh. that was that's in line with my reach for this too, because I, I really struggle with a lot of Marxist themes to bring out out of this movie and out of this text. Because again, and I think part of what you're saying, Evan, with your like initial posing of the question is the book is kind of vague and it's okay when you're a kid reading it you know and it's fine just like oh yeah they're going on a quest to reclaim gold and kill a dragon fucking sick sign me up this is awesome you know (laughs) but it it is really kind of vaguely defined and I've reread the book again for probably like the seventh time recently as well and I I I do think in the sense of if you're going to make a big movie about it it makes sense to kind of add a little bit more impetus to it. And then to just build off of Rye's point, I mean, my stretch was that is like Smog the imperialist and Thorne almost like the the national bourgeoisie who we critically support in terms of reclaiming the nation's wealth, you know? So that's my reach. I
0: mean,
1: (laughs) I think we can both be right. You're reaching here, like why not?
0: Right, yeah. They're, they're not that dissimilar from each other. Both of those uh kind of Marxist spins on it, but I think it's, I think it makes it, it's, that, I think it makes it a better movie than just like to reclaim gold, you know, just to yeah. get the treasure, like that. That would be. I, I also kind of question whether this trilogy was really built as like a kids movie because I really don't think it was. Like, if kids want to watch The Hobbit, they can watch that cartoon that came out, you know in what, the 70s. I don't feel like this was really a kid's adaptation of The Hobbit.
2: But they seem to want it both ways because they did some like campy kid shit. They made things a little bit more cartoonish than The Lord of the Rings, but they also tried to introduce more serious elements. And it seemed like they wanted to do both and they kind of accomplished neither. They didn't make it as like gritty and serious as The Lord of the Rings, but they also didn't make it just a simple kid's story either
0: that's true yeah and i I forgot to mention this because i know i think you mentioned it i don't know who maybe Ryan mentioned it just as an aside for anyone who doesn't know guillermo del toro was supposed to direct this trilogy he spent two years developing it in pre-production and then warner brothers was apparently like hurting financially and he had to drop out and that's when jackson came in and you know on his uh, on Shadowfax to save the day because they <laughs> needed someone to to write this they needed someone who knew Lord of the Rings you know like could make yeah. these movies and i think i think that probably that switch probably had a lot to do with the muddled message of it being like a kids movie cuz i have a feeling that del toro would have made it a little bit more kids ish i don't know i think of like pinocchio being a kids movie but also having like adult themes or other movies he's done like that so
1: you know the Pan's labyrinth and some kind of like spooky scary movies and they had like the like the, what is it i can't think of what his name is the one that i like found the labyrinth like the real effects and it, like it does appeal to clothes but also it's really scary so adults can also well i think there would have been a lot more themes like that not just cg works or problems
0: yeah i think that that's what happened they had spent so much money probably already that I'm sure the CGI to make orcs was cheaper than all of whatever they'd have to do. And it just kind of felt cheesy. Less so in the first movie. I think the first movie is fun. Um, and I, I don't know, we don't have to like go through the entire you know, plot of the first film, but I think the setup, as we already kind of talked about, as what they turned the quest into, how it's now kind of a reclaiming your homeland kind of situation. And you kind of see everyone is really... Like the camaraderie early on is very strong, and Bilbo is starting to kind of gain some courage, as you said, Nick. And I think you really don't see that much deviation from the book. Like there's little bits of, like you could be really nitpicky. Like a Hobbit would, you know, in the movie he he runs out of his house with his back on backpack on, but in the book he's got nothing on him, which is like super unHobbit like he's like naked basically, no hat, nothing, which I think is pretty funny in the book actually.
1: I think one of the more important aspects that they changed was who tricked the trolls: Bert, Tom, and William. And I think that's a really important aspect to like, I don't know, like explore, like why they made the executive decision to like make it Bilbo and not Gandalf, like mentoring him on like the riddles of the way, like how you're gonna have to outsmart your enemies as you progress through this quest.
0: Well, go ahead, Nick. I have a theory on that too. No, I was just going to say,
2: agreed that it is a big change, but I also didn't hate that one as much because it kind of gives you that character development in bits of Bilbo that you don't necessarily get where, you know, he's obviously in a bad situation and he starts to think on his feet a little bit because you really don't see that until we get to the golem scene, which I do want to touch on a little bit in the book. But I, it, it's a change. It's one that I didn't hate.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily hate it but and I can I see I feel like the value in making that change was to almost like make Bilbo's kind of character develop more quickly like in the book I feel like it took him much longer to really be 100%. Know, courageous whereas in the movie they needed him to have that in the first movie because there's two like six more hours of content that they're gonna yeah be. we're like
2: an hour and a half in already we got to see something you know
0: right and and they do it's all it's like you mean in the in the like you said in the book he doesn't really have any part of it he's not stalling for time the whole thing he's not telling them how to cook you know the and we're 40
2: pages into the book at this point
0: (laughs) right exactly and they've only and there's what an hour of content maybe um they spend a lot of time in the in the hobbit hole in you know the shire early on in the movie but Gandalf does in the both like he's the one who kind of arrives at the nick of time for like the sunlight to, to kill the, not kill the, well, I guess kills the trolls, turns them to stone. Um, and they also did change a little bit of the, like when they find the swords in the, um, the cave where the trolls lived, I feel like they altered that a little bit, but it was very minor. Like they don't I'm trying to remember what the exact thing that they changed, but it wasn't very, I'm nit- nitpicking on it maybe. Um, but I think it's when we, after the, um, the trolls I think is when we do start to see some changes and I, and they, they talk to, is it, is it at this point in the book or in the movie did, is, does Thorin give a story about Azog, the defiler? Cause I know there's a scene in the movie where they kind of show like the recreation of the battle. Is that at this point?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's after that when basically Azog is introduced and Thorin kind of gives that, or I think it's Balin, talking about why Thorin is so driven yes, and who his right. nemesis might be, right? Because then we get like the chase scene going into Rivendell, which didn't exist in the books and, and everything like that. But this gets into, I think, really playing up, really playing into the Thorin character. And I think it really is trying to replicate like this quest, as you guys already alluded to, of like trying to make Thorin essentially like the new Aragorn
3: yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah
0: but sorry you're not aragorn buddy
2: <laughs> no and th- the thing is thorn is a cool character in his own right but like he's an older wiser dwarf in the books with his own like cool history he doesn't have to be aragorn but, and he had like, no I beard for Go- yeah like he's old in the books. you know it drives me freaking crazy <laughs> It really does.
0: Yeah, they, I saw something saying like, why does he have – He's no. he has no beard? They're just like – Why yeah. is Thorin sexy? Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but so maybe we should mention, since you mentioned – I guess I brought up Azog, the Defiler, is that is – every movie needs a bad guy, you know, because you don't have Sauron and you don't have Saruman in this trilogy. And there really isn't one other than just kind of the orcs themselves – as a overall body so they had to bring back someone from the dead and so i don't know maybe either you or rye or nick you want to maybe give us a a snippet on well you can also agree that it's stupid that he's in this movie i think it's stupid
1: it is it's it's, it's annoying how big of a character he is it's not just that he's in know but that he is such a focal antagonist throughout the entire trilogy it is very frustrating and makes <sighs> him
2: yeah. And the annoying thing is, is that Bolg, who also appears in the movies, is Azog's son, but Bolg is in the books, so you can just use him as the bad guy, even though like he only is mentioned very briefly in the books, but if you want to play something up, just use him. He's there. Because Azog is dead. Because And they show the scene where like they try to recapture Moria, right? Because the whole thing about this is that Durin's folk, which is Thorin's, you know, ancestry and family lineage, they get driven out of khazad Moria, and ultimately found the Lonely Mountain, right? After they find the Balrog, which you see in The Lord of the Rings. So that scene that they're showing is them, you know, fighting to recapture Moria after they've been driven out of that, right? But Azog dies there, and I think he's actually killed by Dane, who shows up in the Battle of the... Five armies or whatever it is, the third, the entire third movie. So that guy's already dead, but his son still exists and he's mentioned in the book. So why do we need both of them? Yeah,
1: It's just lazy. We man. need
2: someone for Legolas to
0: kill, I guess.
1: <laughs> why is Legolas in a <laughs> That's
0: another question, isn't uh-huh. it? <laughs> I think again, that's like another. Well, I think he's he doesn't appear to the second movie, but it's just kind of like also lazy. They needed, they wanted to just bring in more characters. This is where I also. Wonder how the like if these these characters were only simply brought in to just link the two trilogies. I think that's mm-hmm. what they spent a lot of time doing was trying to link them for people because they're sixty years apart, and obviously an elf can live forever, so they can have him in both.
3: You know, he somehow looks older in The Hobbit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> His eyes are really creepy in this.
2: Yeah, and like to that point, like where they're older. It does make sense that he's there, right? And Tolkien probably hadn't conceptualized Legolas yet, because he hadn't written Lord of the Rings. But if you want to do a fan service thing, have him make an appearance in, you know, when they're outside when they're in the prison cells in the halls of the woodland realm. And then that's it. Do a, do your little like chitty fan service thing and then move
0: on. He doesn't need to have his own story arc. Well. Well we'll talk about that with the second movie, is they had to What's, what's a what's a movie without a love triangle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is sort of where you get... You also get in this first movie, I think it was towards... Maybe it's only a mention. Maybe it's not in it. But you you learn a little bit about the five wizards, which I think was kind of a nice, actually a decent service to people, is learning a little bit out. Because most people don't really know anyone beyond Gandalf and uh, Saruman, Saruman. So yeah. it's just... It was cool to have um, Radagast in it, even though, I don't know, it was like that quirky little character that they had to have in it because it, like, that's a kid he edition. was
1: comedic Yeah.
0: So we could see all the bird shit on his head <coughs> under his little, under his hat.
3: <laughs> I mean, he was a funny character. Like he added a lot of fun to that movie, to be fair. But yeah, I mean, definitely a kid edition for sure.
1: I just usually would take the opportunity, like if they're going to invent shit, just talk about the Blue Wizards. Why not? There's nothing about them. Like you have a free range to do whatever you want with them, and nobody can get on. Just kill them, make them something cool. If you're in your films and you want to like to this, I
0: don't
2: know. Yeah, you heard it here, Amazon. You know, enlist us, pay us money, and we'll write a <laughs> friggin' blue Blue Wizards spinoff.
0: It would be really cool to see a show kind of just focused on one race just like one part of the elves you know or one kingdom within them and just kind of have it be that kind of thing and just i know they like to have it be very expansive across all of middle earth you know these world you know it's a pretty awesome world so why not have lots of it but it'd be really cool to kind of focus it in on a smaller that's my 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 plug of the it's not really a plug just my opinion
3: i was trying to relate it in a more mainstream way and i was just thinking it would have been better if Peter Jackson could have somehow blown people out of the water by making The Hobbit in 2000. And then they gave him the cash to make the real Lord of the Rings movies, but the way that they should be made by extending those into even three movies a piece. Like, make a whole fucking series of nine if you want. Like, people would enjoy that. Like, you can include Tom Bombadil, for God's sakes. Like, please.
2: Mike's big on Tom Bombadil. I'm, I like, love Tom we, Bombadil, We gotta man. get Tom
3: Bombadil and Goldberry in there.
2: He's an
1: character. I love him.
0: You know, you know what? I actually, I just realized. I don't feel like we, we. This is a disservice to those to to our three previous episodes on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't think we talked about him that much in his omission. And I, I, we have omitted the omission from our previous episodes. <laughs> oh, no. So plug
2: for uh, me and Mike's episode on Tolkien because we talked a little bit about Tom Bombadil. there. You did. And I,
0: I remember <laughs> hearing that being like, shit, we didn't do the... We, we, we <laughs> didn't get into that enough. There's so much to talk about in all those movies that it's...
3: That meme that you sent in the group chat about this is just a perfect encapsulation of why it's so disappointing is because there's so much material to cover and then having... I mean, I guess to describe it again, it's just... To say that there are three movies of the huge three Lord of the Rings books and then three movies of this tiny Hobbit book, it's like, yeah, there's so much material to pull from and then to have done this thing where you have to insert things where they don't belong. It's just awkward.
0: I mean, you could have had a season on each of the three. Like they made, they made what, 10 hours on each of the Game of Thrones books, right? Mm -hmm. Like 10 episodes. You could have had 10 episodes of an hour each on each of the Lord of the Rings movies easily easy you could have had two seasons yeah you could have just made them until like you'd like you know the actors are too old i don't know (laughs) like legolas is in this movie um (laughs) the other thing too that i i I noted down just as a thing that was different because we're talking about they kind of switch up this is again like maybe a little of a nitpick they switch up where gandalf gets the key like from is it from thrain
2: yeah Thorin's dad.
0: Don't they kind of change around like where, like they kind of insinuate that he got it from him before the, you know, beforehand, but then why does he then go to meet him again?
2: Well, they don't want to answer that question because the reality is, is in the lore Gandalf had already done that and had his suspicions almost confirmed that the necromancer was Sauron. Right. And then he meets Thorin in Bree later on gives him the map and the key and then we kind of proceed from there but that really plays into the entire motivations from Gandalf's perspective for this quest to begin with which really you know in fairness aren't fleshed out at all in the hobbit and you have to kind of get that from the appendices of the lord of the rings <laughs> which you know is a lot to
0: ask but <laughs> that's what I would that's what I was actually curious what you thought of Like what is Gan? I mean, mean, again, because he only has kind of an inkling of who the necromancer is, and this quest, and kind of the importance of reclaiming. That's why I think it actually makes sense to be more than just a gold, like a cash grab, literally for the you know for the dwarves to get their gold back. It makes a lot more sense to reclaim and kill Smog because of the fear of the necromancer. I think that you told me you said like, well, what if what if he had control of Smog? Well, uh, and
2: that was kind of Gandalf's thinking in the whole thing was that in the grand scheme of what Gandalf saw coming of Sauron coming back, he, again, as you can read in the appendices and other things, he saw the danger of once Sauron's war kind of broke out, of him using the dragon, Smog, to basically desolate Lorien or Lake Town. You know, Thranduil and all that. So he was kind of moving this on a hunch, on a good hunch, almost preemptively to kind of remove Smog from that picture. And like you have to remember that Smog is inherently evil in the Tolkien verse because he was. I mean, the dragons are a product of Morgoth, which from the Silmarillion, which is, I mean, he was essentially Sauron's master. If that gives you an idea of how evil this guy is. So
1: <laughs> I think it makes it more sense when you think of like Smaug being a Maya spirit because he has like that much power, like the Balrogs and whatnot, like they're all like on the same power level. We're doing like power scaling here.
2: And that's a good point because like we talked about, and Rai, you brought it up in the beginning, like the ability to create is that like Morgoth not being Aru, who is essentially the god of the universe, has no power to create new life. He only has the power to manipulate, right? So the orcs are a manipulation. The Balrogs are a manipulation. The dragons are a manipulation of existing powerful life already, but just turned to evil purpose. So in Gandalf's mind, Smaug would have always been turned towards an evil purpose, given the history.
0: As far as the, like slightly getting back to the to the movie, I think you you mentioned the, the chase into Rivendell. That's sort of how they fit in um, Radagast, was he kind of diverts them using his magical rabbits and such to chase them away so they can get into Rivendell. And that's where they kind of build up that little... That's why I thought it was useful to hear at the beginning how the elves and dwarves are actually... What, how they sort of feel about each other, because immediately when they get there, the dwarves are just kind of like, well, I don't want to be in this, be here. But they, and in the book, it's just, they're like gladly willing to help them. They show them the the writing on the map and the sun, you know, the, the sunset and everything to give them the information they need. They need. And I, I don't know, they also have Saruman coming to Drivendell too, and they have this little like, you know, the little- Council. The council, which you don't get, but I think it's- I don't know. I thought it was kind of nice.
2: I mean, yeah, it actually kind of does make sense when if you're already showing or trying to show kind of like the grander scheming going on behind the scenes of this quest, that does make sense because at that point, the council, which was Galadriel, Elrond, the wizards, would have suspected something going on in Dolgolder with the necromancer Sauron at that point. So... Again, it does help to tie some of the threads together in the broader story, in connecting this to Lord of the Rings. I think
0: I, I thought it was cool. They also have him like inspect the the swords, and it's the sword of Mordor too. They kind of tie in little bits. Like I, I feel like there are times where Jackson did bring in nice little bits that kind of give things like more. Maybe it's just this first movie where he kind of did bring more stuff in. But there wasn't really any added characters other than than um, Azog in the first movie. Every, everything was kind of as is, right? And then it's later on, that as they start diverting more, as you said, Nick, is that's when shit went south. And there's actually... I, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, with like the way they constructed the films, because they like, chose to keep one important thing, like big main event happening in each film. But the first thing I think why it's so good is because it's the majority of the book. And it's like the first eleven chapters, and only nineteen chapters. So, like, they had a lot of material to work from. They didn't need to like add any other characters. Whereas, like, the second one is only three chapters of um, the book, and then the last one is like two chapters.
0: Yeah, the why, battle is like one, one paragraph, like right? Isn't Isn't the battle of five armies two pages?
1: Yeah, just Belob gets knocked
0: out. Yeah, that exactly.
2: That's the point I made in the podcast with Mike that we did. It was just that yeah, Tolkien doesn't really describe the battle at all it's like bilbo gets knocked on the head and gets told in retrospect what happens and it's really broad strokes it's like where yeah the elves started fighting with the men and the dwarves and then the eagles and bjorn came and we won and thorin unfortunately died as well
0: well one quote <laughs> that i one quote that i wrote down that i thought was interesting it was when they're during during that council saruman says or he says um he, he, quote, believes only great power can keep, can keep great evil in check. And I was thinking about this in the context, especially of like the second one and kind of what we know about Saruman, at, you know, what his character becomes. And I felt like it was like, you know, the note that I wrote down was like, you know, democracy can't stop fascism, right? Like you can't stop this evil. Like gr- great power does not actually stop evil in my stretch of the day.
1: It's almost playing into like those, AUT authoritarian like anarchist type tropes. I'm sorry if anarchists are walking with this is just like my knowledge of it. are like, oh, <laughs> You're like among actually, friends, right? Like, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the anti-authoritarian, like George Orwellian type thought. That's what it reads like well to me, and it wouldn't yeah, surprise totalitarianism. me. Totalitarianism. Yeah, exactly.
3: Which is funny because. In the Lord of the Rings universe, the best that, you know, the use of authority still happens. It's like, you're going to have a battle of some armies. That's kind of authoritarian, but it's like, that will still be backed up by, you know, in the liberal mindset, it's supposed to be backed up by a de- democratic system, right? So it's justified in that sense. But in this scenario, what it's backed up by some kind of monarchy, it's going to be some kind of like feudal system at best. So. The fact that that seems even more justifiable than just like what we would consider justifiable authoritarianism.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, another thing too, is one of the notes that I wrote down sort of as like a theme on this is that, you know, I think you mentioned that this, he might've started this book around the time of world war one or give or take around that period is that it kind of shows a theme that like the victory of one group of another is necessary, but is the price of war and like human life worth it? And I feel like he has this very sense of. Tolkien, you know, kind of has a sense that like, it's not necessarily worth it. I mean, Tolkien does have kind of like this world
2: worldview, right? Of like, there's good and bad. And, and that, what, I, what I mean when I say that is that it's kind of binary, right? And there's a lot of shades of gray, but I don't know in our moment right now, I think there is some use for that, right? <laughs> like they're, the working class is good, you know, and there's a lot of like stripes in between there and the capitalist class is bad. So I don't think it's bad to necessarily apply that, but you know, that that's an oversimplification. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You're And he's like using his, um, what is did it what did he He's some type of, Oh gosh, I cannot remember it. Augustinian Catholic. Like he's very Christian. So like, he's yeah. contributing like, that very polarizing good bad dynamic to politics mm-hmm. and we see that a lot today like in modern like current contemporary issues but then that leaks into his his world building with that and like the building and thing of like monarchy being be like, well, this big thing you just gotta have the right leader in charge he'll just take care of us
0: that's all about it in like the lord of the rings with you know like whoever's gonna lead you know gondor whoever like if it's a good leader you know they'll the The poor people will be like better, or he doesn't really touch into get into those things because I don't know that his view of those things would actually be ones we might even agree with. So maybe it's better he didn't.
3: It's a terrible thing to try to relate any Lord of the Rings stuff to politics in real life, especially because the enemy in Lord of the Rings is so clear cut. Like they're literally like not even the same species or anything. Like it's just like you know. But that's what ends up happening is if you try to relate it, like you're going to talk about people that your country is dehumanizing or um, that your political compass group, like your ideology is dehumanizing or whatever, like you can't really make that analogy to real life. But the way, like you were saying earlier, Evan, where he kind of asks the question of whether it's justified to use this level of force and whether, you know, what you're protecting is justifying it. It's like, that is the liberal way to, to, to put it in a movie is to ask the question, never really answer it in what do you call it, like theoretical terms, but then in this one instance where the bad guy is so clear cut and the good guys are so clear cut, we can definitely do it. And even if it's again, backed up by a a terrible system like monarchy or feudalism or whatever, it's still fine.
0: We don't need to go through, like there's a lot also that kind of happens in there once they leave and they, you know, they're climbing through the mountains and the, which I thought was cool. Like the, 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 what do they call it? The stone giants. I thought was kind of like another, like kind of like kid ish. I mean, it's in the books. It's maybe not as pronounced as it is in here. But this is when they're captured by the orcs and we have Gollum and Bilbo meeting and having their game of riddles. And I think, Nick, you mentioned something about that portion of it that you thought was worth uh, – I think you said there was a change that you didn't like. Did I get that right?
2: No, no, no. I mean, I just thought that this was in the context of the trilogies was one of the high points of the trilogies. Okay, yeah. yeah. How, how true it was. And I just really I, – I don't even think there's anything worth – I mean, for me, commenting on from like a theoretical or left perspective, it was just something that I really appreciated because of how well it was done to flesh out the Golem character, the origins of the ring in terms of Bilbo finding it and everything like that. I just thought it was something that was
0: really well done. One thing that, I, that, I, that a curiosity that I have in the, it's it's in the scene right after the guessing game and he sort of, Bilbo sort of like trapped behind he puts on the ring and he's trapped. This is the first time he's put on the ring, I believe. And I wonder because they don't really—it's not implied in the movie—but I, I wrote down in my notes that this is sort of like the moment where, like, the the necromancer maybe gains more power as you see in the next movie. Is he somehow have this sense? And this is a kind of a reach of like a sense of the because again he didn't write the Hobbit knowing that this was like the one ring that's going to be in the Lord of the Rings. But it's sort of implied in my sent my mind that it, the future Sarmon is like now sensing this rings power and maybe can become stronger because of it. And we can cut that part. <laughs> I don't
1: know. No, the ring chose a different ring bearer because it's trying to get back to its owner Cause it's like a sentient bang. I you know like right. it fell off of the, one, you know, so I think that's, what that scene does not what you mean. He keeps trying all he can to get its ring back. Yes. But it keeps falling into the hands of these hobbits who are just like inherently good beings. They don't have that kind of evil. I'm going to take over like humanity or the world in them.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing that you have to remember is that Sauron's strength in this is still growing so he's not going to be able to sense it to the extent that he is in the Lord of the Rings because he's not as strong as he is at that point either. At least that's what I have to kind of tell myself to make sense of, you know, Bilbo's frequent use of the ring at this point in time, whereas it's always a danger in the Lord of the Rings. You yeah, know?
0: yeah, that's true. And so they he then uses it again to he meets up, the, you know, the, the rest of the, 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 the dwarves escape. You know in there which actually i think also, also is a pretty cool little chase kind of moment in the end of the first movie and this is when they're cornered in the top of the trees you know and the eagles come and i don't know why they felt the need for gandalf to whisper to the butterfly to bring the eagles because that doesn't happen in the books and i was thinking like
2: purely call back to the to the fellowship of the ring yeah
0: okay I, well, yeah, that's right.
2: Because he, he whispers to the moth when he's trapped by Saruman at the top of Orthanc. But that's it's purely another unneeded fan service.
0: Because I think in the book, they just explain it as the, the eagle sort of knew something was going on, and they kind of went to check it out. And they kind of knew Gandalf, like, kind of in passing. And they hate the orcs more, and so they're willing to uh, to help them.
1: They have their yeah. own agency. Whereas, like, the way Pierre Jackson depicts them as, like, they... Can just be controlled of Gandalf asked really nicely. We'll just do any once. But they, not like a neutral force, I think in the most part, but they know that if like Middle Earth were to come to an end, it would affect them. Neutral good. Game. Neutral
2: yes. good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why they couldn't just fly the fucking Eagles to Mount Doom, y'all. <laughs> I was about to say that. I was like, <laughs> are we going to have to bring that up? Yeah. No. But like how it really happened in the books was that, the Eagles have their eeries, their nests, in the top of the mountains. They were still close to the top of the mountains, and Gandalf had actually removed an arrow from the Lord of the Eagles wing at one point in his life. So it was basically a favor for a favor.
0: Yeah. I think that's basically the end of the first the first movie. They kind of uh I think the I think the very last scene is you see Smog like opens his eyes because you're like, okay, the next one's gonna be with Smaug so we're gonna give a little foreshadowing
2: yeah and one good thing though was that that scene between Bilbo and Thorin to kind of flesh out Thorin's growing respect for Bilbo because I think that actually does matter throughout the story and it wasn't really fleshed out in the books as much but I think that moment where Thorin says look I'm glad we brought you along actually is good for Bilbo's character development and he, for people to buy into the fact that he is growing throughout this, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's funny you said that because one of the notes I wrote is when they're, I think in the cave, which is the entrance to the orcs, uh, the orcs is he's really pissed at him. And he's like just being a real dick to, to um, Bilbo. Like he's really not respecting him. And then I think they did enough in that moment to show his courage again. Like he had shown it to them earlier with the trolls. Now was showing it to him again. And now he actually considers him like a friend, which again, they build up all of the little kind of friendships. Bilbo barely has a friendship with Gandalf throughout the book, but they play it up in this because they can't just have them walking around. You know, they have to, be, they gotta be doing something, but yeah. So that brings us to uh, the second movie, which is the desolation of Smog, and the sort of the big, Early piece of this, I I wrote down a a line here. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I wrote down: "Is Erebor equivalent to land back?"
2: So you're playing into my reach from the beginning, yeah.
0: Apparently, apparently, (laughs) I I didn't even I didn't remember writing that note down. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But we do get in this point, which is pretty accurate, I think, to the movie and the book. Is the you know um, when they're you know they're running and they what is it burn? Is that how you pronounce it? Bayorn. Bayorn. And sort of that whole scene I thought was pretty funny. And the they kind of altered it a little bit, but again, like a little comic-y relief of mishandling the signals. And Gandalf definitely being who he is, he's able to kind of talk his way through things. He's the uh the voice here. It kind of convinces him to let them stay. Um I'm trying to look at my notes too. And this is this is before they get to murkwood i believe right they're kind of they spend a bunch of kind of not a bunch of time but they spend this time here they kind of get supplies and food and they get their ponies to get to murkwood and then that's when they all start tripping on the uh the murkwood
1: yeah like the utility of them going and visiting like Bjorn, was to learn what they should not do in Mirkwood. like how to navigate it without dying and then they still end up falling fault because of like bomber River, although that doesn't happen in
0: the t- Until this point the dwarves really do seem to work as like a collective group which is kind of like maybe equivalent parallel to like the fellowship early on in the first in the tr- that first trilogy but in the trilogy but they tend they send they start to seem to like have I don't know I don't know they kind of have them kind of arguing with, with each other a little bit because they're supposed to stay on the path because if they go off the path then you know things will go south, and they have that little, you know, issue. And again, this is where they they also played up the the spiders more. I feel like they they altered like Bilbo's interactions with them. I don't remember exactly how it went down in the movie. Now I was kind of watching that quickly, but he puts on the ring and he sees them hiding, and that's when like one of them like whispers to him too, right? Doesn't that happen in the book? The spiders. Yeah, like- he
1: can hear the spiders of Merkwood talking. Like that's what the ring allows him to be able to.
0: But like they, they talk in the black speech. Yes. Okay.
1: Because they are like the grandchildren of a who is the mother of Shelob, and Shelob mothered them.
0: Shelob's little. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> well, you know, I was just saying, Nick is the we're kind of at the, they're kind of going through Mirkwood and having again another instance where without Bilbo and the Ring, really, it, it it's sort of funny to me in this in the trilogy of Bilbo not being wanting to even go. And now he's like an expert swordsman. Yeah. <laughs> Just killing things with his sword. Well, it helps when you're invisible. Yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. you can-
2: Yeah. I mean, and that in the book, I think is like the first point where Bilbo really finds his own because he's able to rescue all the dwarves from the webbings of the spiders and kill them and they can't see them, And that's where the sword actually gets its name Sting, because they're hearing them. I'm sorry if this was already said, I just stepped away for a moment, but called you know, the, the spiders called it Sting, right?
0: I, I mean, I thought that part was pretty good. As far as in the second movie, I feel like it's soon after this, when things start to take a turn for me, as far as the movie and just, and all of it. And I believe this is a gun. Gandalf is also not there during this part he has left the group, which he likes to do. And this also takes me to one thing that I found annoying about the second and third movies is somehow in multiple instances, characters seem to be able to ride hundreds and hundreds of miles in like a day. So middle earth got, got tiny. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's, I know this is kind of like a, it's one of the things in movies like this. I feel like you just, have to accept and it's
1: well, like in the book mark Wood is days and days like they're running out of water they're right hungry but in the movie they have to shorten it and i understand that but they shorten it like too much or to see like they're in and out like it's just a little a little path little trail they're taking.
0: yeah it is true it's 15 minutes i feel like at most um
2: i'm willing to accept gandalf doing this some of this stuff because he's like one of the most powerful beings in the world. But like when you see Legolas and Tauriel, who I'm sure we're going to introduce here soon, riding essentially hundreds of miles north to get back and kind of do like a a scouting mission and then still get back in time. That's where where you lose me a little bit.
0: It's funny. I wrote in my note too that I think... I think when he rescues them, like they still don't know about the ring, obviously, and his ability to just kind of be invisible. I think he even says, I found my courage. And it's funny. Like I didn't remember this, but I'm like, I bet he's going to say that right now. And he does say, and I'm like, Oh, of course he did. <laughs> and, and then he also like, they mentioned like he was staying on the path. And my note that I wrote down another stretch is I wrote that that was like a metaphor for democracy and anti-authoritarianism. It's like staying on the path. Like you can't, Deviate from sort of like the way that you're expected to do things because that's bad again, which we were just talking about the anti authoritarian Tolkien.
2: Yeah, I
0: mean, uh, I can't hear you, Mike, for some reason.
2: Mike, you're muted.
0: Oh, are you where? Oh, for some reason, it says your mic isn't connected. Ah, no,
1: try plugging it in or like kick me <laughs> out and plug <playing> it back in. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's the deep state coming after Mike. But yeah, I mean, it gets into, I guess, how you have to try to understand Tolkien. Because Tolkien is, it sucks because like he's loved on the right as well, right? Which is why I kind of like to do this stuff. And I know we haven't been talking as explicitly about left-wing politics because I think it's a little bit harder with The Hobbit, you know, and I I, I think it more comes in, I I think we kind of made a lot of the points about the movies, right, and how the movies just, were bastardized as a result of capitalism and that's an obvious you know point that everybody should take to heart right like this is a good story there's good kernels within this but they did this they did too much to try to make the movies but to go back to your point about being on the path it is important to remember and i think i said this in my episode it was like tolkien's like my favorite liberal but he is a liberal and it's about doing things right the right way but who's defining what the right way is, you know, and that is defined by the status quo, the common sense around these things. And we have to challenge that, what that status quo and what the common sense around how to approach an issue is. It's like these billionaires dying in a sub. It's like, well, well, the nice thing to do is to, you know, you you shouldn't wish death on anybody or anything like that. And it's like, they're my class enemies these people are Sauron if I want to look at it in the Manichaean kind of sense right now
0: you know
1: I'm really sad they couldn't separate for longer like it just right, really yeah. me out that I, I, I don't care I just- yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: it's funny when this when this when this comes out people will be like I don't even remember I don't even know what you're talking about anymore because they'll yeah. find some of the
2: new thing from three weeks ago like <laughs> <Okay>, come on
0: <laughs> right exactly and then I think um so after they get through Mirkwood, this is when they arrive and they meet the elves again, and this is where they. I wrote down like Legolas is in the scene, and this is stupid. Like maybe they. I think what you one of you said was it would have been cool if Legolas is in this like a little bit here, kind of. Yeah, just a little
2: contrast shot, like a little cameo, whatever. You know, I'm like, ooh, get a chair in the get a chair in the theater,
0: but- right? People like, people wanted, they probably, I'm sure they do like these testing of audiences. And they're like, we want to see Legolas like shoot a bunch of arrows and killing stuff. And they're like, how much can we pay you? Shield
1: surfing Uh, and barrel riding. And
0: and they're like, okay, you know, we'll pay you to do that because people want to see it. And so fine. You know, it's fine. And this is like you said, Nick, they brought in Toriel. Um, As this love interest for this love triangle that apparently was a creation by Del Toro because he wanted to see more female characters in the trilogy or in the movies, which is understandable because they are lacking, but I hated it. I hated it. And
2: it's like make her a strong standalone female badass, but like her character is so dependent upon like the love interest of like these two other strong guys who were all also supposed to have like, you know, We're already supposed to be bought into, although Legolas, sure, but like Feely or Keely, I can't remember which one of the twins that she ends up getting bought into. It's like make her like, yeah, but like her character arc depends on like this other guy who is like Thorin's heir. He's Thorin's nephew. And if he dies, so he's already like kind of like de facto in the lineage, de facto strong, you know. Regal dwarf character. It's like make her strong on her own merits. Like why does she have to be in here as just the you know badass warrior, but still dependent upon these other characters, these other male characters? If that's what you're trying to do, yeah. And maybe I'll let Rye speak to that a little more because I'm a dude. Wasn't that to this, it, so? How but... no, you're good.
1: <laughs> what are you What you like her, supposedly like marrying Legolas. Like she was supposed to marry into a so he, he was supposed to be like the next in line as well they always do that i don't know why it's just like an older story and like it's one of the next thing was I, i'm glad the rings of power is taking like a different approach and they have like a really good like creative idea about like making galadriel like a main character i guess those other characters like in the hobbit or in the air during have yeah, universe that they could have used and given like an old storyline that didn't get it like yeah. Arwen could have gotten a lot more storyline. I don't know why they didn't. She so could have accompanied them. I don't know.
0: She was in a lot of the extended scenes, which they don't have in the theatrical, which is a bummer for yeah. Arwen at least. And it's also that like there's it's not that there's no
2: precedence in Tolkien for strong female characters. Some of like the most powerful beings in the world are female characters. Like if you go back in the lore, there's like Luthien, right, who's like the the daughter of one of the original elf Lords from like the first age and a literal demigod. Right. And that's who Tolkien basically modeled. Like Luthien is inscribed on his wife's gravestone. So like it's not like there's there's no precedence for his thought and his character creation behind making like a strong standalone female character who can be there on her own merits, you know? Yeah.
1: Exactly that. It's the fact that they are like oh strong female character, but she's gonna have a love interest. Like she has to be like focused on chasing after some guy.
0: Yeah, there there isn't a Tolkien. Yeah. There sorry, there isn't a Peter Jackson movie that passes. What do they have? I think there's that joke of when two female characters, Bechdel ha- test. Ha- or yeah, whatever. Bechdel yeah. test in like their first trilogy, and it's like one moment for like five seconds. And so yeah. <laughs> even in this, you know, she doesn't have any conversations with the other. Female elves. She doesn't talk to Galadriel. I guess they're in different places. But yeah, and then the the other thing too. So we don't have to. You know, I feel like we've hit that point of uh, of her character. They also changed the barrel scene of these two. I feel like they changed that completely. I feel like this is the point, and maybe this is like the first hour of the second movie. But really everything after this, like you said, Rob, there's only like, what, three chapters or four chapters of the book left? Yeah, and they're just sure. like, what are we going to do? Let's let's start uh, making things longer that should be shorter, or things shorter that should be longer. They changed the barrel scene. They also really expanded the Elven King Thranduil, is that how you pronounce it? Thranduil? Something like that. The hot they, one? They really expanded his role quite we a pace. bit. <laughs> like, he, he's barely in the book. And they extended his, you know, his character. There's a lot of that extension. And they, they, in the book, it's supposed to be that the elves deliver the barrels, right? To, um, but they don't do that. They have Bard do it. I don't know what you think about that. And it's just simply that they want to expand his character too.
2: I think that whole scene ultimately detracts from Bilbo's growing heroism and ingenuity, right? Because that whole thing is him basically living in invisibility in the Elven King's halls for like, almost, I think it's like two weeks in the book where he's trying to figure out a way to get the dwarves out of there. And he does wait for the elves to get drunk, steal the keys, release them, and then pack them into these barrels before they can get found out. And that is like one of Bilbo's moments where he kind of saves the quest. But instead, we have to turn this into this whole river, you know, floating down the river fight scene. Cause they needed a uh, spectacle.
0: Yeah. I was gonna say that's what they needed. Legolas to shoot some morcs. Right. <laughs> yeah. I kind of hated that whole river scene. Like it was cool. Like, you know I mean? But not even <laughs> that cool. I don't know. That's like a movie spectacle type of thing where it adds action in a movie that didn't have any action in the book.
2: And if your focus is in the right place, you don't need to have that from the beginning. And that's where they lost the thread. From the beginning because it's more on, and I would even argue this about like the Lord of the Rings where like they still maintain the emphasis on relationships of people, even despite all the spectacle. It was still the relationships between the Fellowship, Frodo and Sam, that really, you know, rose to prominence even with all these battle scenes going on. And it's like, this just feels like spectacle for spectacle's sake.
0: And they kind of sidetrack a lot of the relationships in the second movie until late. Until when they finally get into, you know, uh, really inside of the mountain. I feel like they kind of don't have much of any interact. Like it would have been, I would have liked if they just kind of built relationships between the dwarves or something to get to Lake Town something, something else. It had to just be this cool scene of them sneaking into Lake Town you know bard kind of arguing his way through and the the capitalist the i don't remember the name of the little shithead who's like the master's like little puppet what the it hell is this a
1: lot on like the economics and politics of galley river or lake town
3: from they what did i
1: remember and i don't know why because then like after like the desolation of smog and whatnot then they have like a democracy or like parliamentarism isn't bard become a, a leader
0: well, the Master of Lake Town talks about like, I mean, he's basically like the capitalist hoarding all the wealth where all the people are like, not starving, but they're not doing great hoarding it. I think he even mentions how they're going to like stop the election in the town because they knew that Bard was really popular amongst the people, which he then, I think we said before, he becomes kind of like a leader later on after the plot of, these, of this book. I kind of like that little added bit in there kind of with the politics of Lake Town. It's okay
1: of all the things that they added that they didn't need to that was one of the
0: yeah because
2: it does show like this despotic ruler living in opulence right and even to the end like he's trying to and i mean this is a parallel to almost every time some comprador leader has gotten overthrown i mean you think about like batista in cuba like fleeing with all of cuba's literal gold reserves and money right to the to Miami. And this guy's trying to do that but he gets fucking squashed by smog, which is pretty cool. And it doesn't it doesn't all it doesn't happen like that in real life unfortunately more often than not.
0: It almost seemed like this little it almost seemed like they were trying to parallel his sort of control over Lake Town with like smog's control over the mountain and the wealth. Like I felt like that was this one to one little nod that they were trying to create. I don't know. I just, oh, I I just not
1: like, like with Thorin going and reclaiming his crown and whatnot, uh, like Reaganomics type thing, like, oh, we're going to get our wealth back and then it's got to trickle down to the lake. <laughs> down, the down, down, just, down the literally. river, literally down the river.
0: Yeah, I, I wrote down in my notes that Lake Town was like the proletariat. You know, like they're this, you know, and they all show solidarity amongst each other, except for like, again, first they're like hate the dwarves and then they like them because they realize they're going to get them what they're owed from the dwarves.
2: Yeah. But even when like a lot of them are helping shield Bard because he is like the proletarian leader in the analysis that you guys are presenting. And I, I I like it a lot. Um, But there's some like elements of it that are paid off by, the the captain or whatever, right? Like I think Stephen Colbert makes like an appearance or something like that because he's like a big Lord of the Rings fan. Oh really? He like he like tips them off to like say that Bard is here. You know? But yeah, it, it does present some kind of like interesting inner class conflicts because everybody on Lake Town is suffering as a result of this shit. But some people like that gross Alfred character, I think his name Alfred, is Alfred right? yes. like he's still he's still gross and disgusting, but he's still like leaching off some of the benefits of the the masters accumulation of wealth.
0: It's funny my note that I wrote down when I was like I don't know I guess cuz I was kind of like I don't like any of this so I'm going to like put politics into it. I wrote down that Lake Town was like like you know a one of the parts of the USSR that kind of got when it was you know dissolved and it now is like run by like corrupt oligarchs taking across all of the wealth because that's basically what it was it was kind of living like off shock of- doctrine shit, right <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> i mean it was it, it was living off of like the wealth of the war go ahead wait no because all the in
2: your analogy here all those people lived in dale correct right? which was the human settlement which was basically at the foothills of the lonely mountain and that wealth was shared right like kind of idealistically between the dwarves and the humans and everything like that but they essentially got displaced and put into these like, into this shanty town built on docks in the middle of this lake
0: It, it it just felt like too here is they were building up also to create a furthering that sort of love triangle in here because they you know what happens to was it well which was the dwarf which was the dwarf who is in the triangle one of Keely, Keely, I think Keeley. you're right, but th- they just really spent a lot of time building up the Lake Town narrative and Bard's history of Bard and the, you know, almost killing the dragon the first time, and they're going to show you the, you know, like this the special arrow. I'm blanking on what it's called now that they can use the to, black arrow, the black arrow they can use to pierce his like razor sharp or you know armor basically, and they just they they really played that up, and it was okay, but. They needed to fill time because not that much happens until um they they get their way into again because bilbo is smart as shit and he figures out that they have to wait for the sunset not the sunrise right and they get inside and bilbo is now his ready for his burglaring yeah but
2: to your point like show those people's ownership of dale as well prior because like that whole like Lonely Mountain, Dale kind of economy was kind of interdependent. Like those people worked together before. So like you could kind of set up that conflict better by diving into those people's ownership and displacement out of Dale as well. Like it shows the town getting burned, but like build up on that story to show why they might be invested in actually reclaiming some of that wealth later on in in the third movie.
0: It just kind of showed it, it seemed like they had like sort of like the mob mob rule where they like, you know, they see that they're gonna go to the mountain and get their well, but they don't really show to your what you're saying, I think, is they don't really show their their stake in it very much. They don't really show the connection. That would have been pretty easy to show. Yeah. They just kind of
2: I I, I derailed what you were leading into, but No, no, it's
0: fine. I mean, this is basically just (laughs) we now get the point where Bilbo has to go in. And essentially find the Arkenstone. And I think uh, th- this is part of also one of my favorite parts of the this second movie is when Bilbo has his conversation with Smaug. Like it's pretty funny. You know, I think it's a good scene. And he, you know, uh, it just it makes for a good moment in the movie. And he's suspicious of the ring, too. Like he knows he has One of these rings, I think, is what he alludes to when he's talking to Bilbo. And so, I don't know. Another, like, kid, fun aspect of the movie.
1: I think it also leads up, following what you're saying, why why Bilbo was chosen up until this point. Like He got through all of these riddles and whatnot. And I read this in the David Day book, and it blew my mind. But, like, how Tolkien came up with Smaug's name, right, was that it was a form of old English, very British, and speaking. Which translate to sun, sun or cracking. And then also Smaugan, which means penetrating, and then smigol with an asterisk over the A uh, means like worming or wh- wh- what a little bit. Like warming into like a hole, like which is why like Smeagol is Smeagol. But it's like so it's like why Bilbo. Is like he likes riddles so much that in order to figure out how to defeat Smog, he has to figure out what Smog's name is to figure out what his weakness is. So through this process of Tolkien, because he was a professor of like words, he came up with this whole like big circle idea where he came, like he, oh my God, Bilbo figured out that there was a scale, like a warning hole in his body. And then he sent word to Bard as to how to defeat him with the arrow. Like it wasn't something that Bard figured out on his own. I don't know if that makes any sense. What I, I did not, I did not well. But Tolkien came up with all of that, with like developing their names, so like Bilbo being a hobby, liking riddles to be able to figure out the definition of Smog's name to find his weakness. Big brain shit.
0: I didn't know any of that, or sort of put that together. That's great.
2: No, but what I do recall from that, and I didn't get into like the linguistics, so that's awesome, right? But there is a sense in that scene where. Bilbo plays to his, to Smaug's arrogance a bit, right? And his own knowledge. And that kind of opens up the opportunity for Bilbo to, I guess, in the films, find the Argonstone, and the books more so to kind of see the weakness. And I think he is able to transmit it to the thrush, the raven, who is knocking on the door to actually, who actually communicates that knowledge to Bard. But it is this riddle game that kind of opens up the opportunity for Bilbo to, one gave himself time to do either one of these things, right? And I think that is one of the things that they nailed in the movies is just this conversation, right? Between Smog and Bilbo, because you really get that. And it also, in a slip up of Bilbo, is what keys. Smug in to the fact that he came from Lake town because he mentions himself. And this is something that is consistent between the books and the movies as the barrel rider. Yep. Right. And he associates barrels coming from Mirkwood to Lake town and Smog knows enough about the geography and the land around him to make that connection.
0: He does seem smart. Even if he is arrogant, there were sort of like these, uh, one of the notes I wrote in this part of the, so this is almost at the end of the movie, I think yeah, it's when he's kind of released onto Lake town is the greed and corrupt. I feel like the kind of the corruption that's kind of seeping into this is also played up more in the movies is of Thorin's greed. He's not really like sick, like he is in the movie. It seems like they play it up of like the dragon, like the gold sickness. But I wrote down that sort of that Thorin is kind of corrupted by capitalism and power, you know, and in his, corruptive state he then releases the dragon because of his own greed for his for what we kind of said is not really the goal of it was really to reclaim his home not the goal like it is in the movie but because of that greed it ends up killing a lot of people
2: yeah and i think one thing to tie it into some of the conversations around the lord of the rings And how we think that is maybe like a more like Sauron and the one ring is more an explicit tie in for fascism and the ring is that in the Hobbit movies, it's played up as the Arkenstone as what drove like his grandfather mad and what ultimately drives him mad. But what it really is, is that Thor, his grandfather, had one of the seven dwarf rings gifted by Sauron. And that was really more than anything which drove this desire to continue to accumulate wealth more than anything. Right. So it was like all this gold that was kind of accumulated in part because that at that time they possessed one of the rings that ultimately belonged to Sauron, who is like the ultimate capitalist imperialist at that time. And that's something I think that like where they put it on the Arkenstone, the Arkenstone doesn't feature prominently in the books at all.
0: no but well Bilbo does hide it from in the same way as they kind of fit it in the movie right he hides it with thorin mm-hmm. so
2: right right but in terms of like what actually causes thorin to become Right, kind of right, right. sick with this gold lust more than anything although the ring isn't there either but that's <laughs> where that's the, the, the ring more than the arkenstone was the foundation the one of the dwarf rings was the foundation of all that wealth more so than the Ark stone.
0: Yeah, I think that's they. 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 It seems like they're trying to. Like I thought mentioned, they kind of are kind of contrasting smog's hoarding of wealth and Lake Town's kind of master hive of hoarding wealth. Now they have the Thorin holding hoarding wealth. It's sort of like their capitalism will or capitalist being at the top and having money will corrupt you, no matter what. You can't be uncorrupted. That's not a. Uh, you, you know it's going to corrupt you so um
3: no i actually like the analysis much better when you introduce like occult objects i think that's what you should do is like have things like ark stones to prevent you from being corrupted or whatever or, like or if that's something that, it doesn't matter however it works like you need occult objects because you can't have like a material analysis and just i mean sorry i just this stuff frustrates me so much because it's where people get their political analysis whether they realize it or not because they don't have any kind of like Ideas for how to, like, if you ask people how do you stop people from getting corrupted by wealth, they'd say, oh, they just have to be accountable. You just have to do, it like, local, like small businesses or whatever. It's like, okay, so you just admit your thing can't work at scale. It's like, there are ways to do that at scale. You just have to have accountability at scale. But, like, when you can't imagine that because you inevitably arrive at communism, which is forbidden for us to even talk about, then you have to introduce occult objects. You have to introduce, like, all these weird thematic things. And that's why you get all these literally just occult people. Now we have in our society who believe in whether it's QAnon or new agey stuff or whatever their pet solution is for all this stuff. It's like anything but communism, anything but the obvious solution. And I think that really relates well to every movie and pop culture object that we have for the solutions to what are the ills of society. It's like some kind of occult thing, some kind of weird spiritual solution that we can attribute to whatever our pet solution is in our real life too. Like, because everybody could like attribute the Arkenstone to I don't know like whatever QAnon theory you have as like a a stone enthusiast in real life i don't know
2: yeah <laughs>
1: yeah that's easier than white thinking about class just yeah. on one small aspect.
2: well and to your point to both of your points is that whether tolkien knows it or not what formulate the best societies even in his vision is when wealth is shared mm-hmm. right so I mean, we're talking about like, even at the end where the elves partake, the dwarves partake all regionally and all this wealth that's been accumulated by this dragon and the dwarves prior in the mountain. But like when everything kind of hits a point of like where everybody's happy is when that wealth is actually shared because everybody has done something to kind of generate and protect that wealth or take it back in this case, you know, and that, that extends to the Lord of the Rings as well.
0: Yeah. It like the, the you're what you were saying reminded me of that article that came out where it was in the New York Times about, uh, you know, oh, well, it turns out that our economic system isn't actually that good after all. It's another, it but in that article, like you said, they don't mention the word capitalism, they don't mention the word socialism. They just like have this like boogeyman economy is bad. They just kind of like create something out of thin air because they can't pinpointed on one thing as the problem because they do then people might be like oh well what's the alternative to capitalism and that would that'd be bad for business it's sharing the wealth of the lonely mountain
1: (laughs) it just shows like how effective red scare propaganda and mccarthyism really have the masses especially in like the united states like where we cannot do anything beyond late-stage capitalism and like our two party system. nobody can see past that
0: it's just crony it's capitalism. <laughs> it's just crony capitalism, guys. If you just uh. if you just if it was just in the hands of some smart people, uh, spe- speaking of capitalism, the third movie which was Capitalist Cash Grab, again, this movie I I just despise. I don't like it at all. It's too long, and I watched the extended edition, which is like an extra 20 minutes. That's how much I I wanted to. Uh...
1: You're a brave soul. I salute you.
0: I don't know what the extended scenes were because I don't think I actually saw this one in the theater. Of the, this, I think is the only of the six movies I didn't see. It sucks. The battle is forever. They just, you know, they played up more about Thorin being sick from the gold and refusing to make a deal with the elves. I don't know. I don't know what any anyone else wants to. Azog is really prominent in this movie. You know, hiding in his, uh, on the top of the mountain, which I'm blanking on the name of the, what it's called, where he's hiding. Or not, not hiding, really. He's just kind of setting their little trap. I don't know. I just.
2: Well, I mean, it ultimately detracts from the main point of this whole series sequence in the books. And the main thing is that Bilbo essentially takes the Arkenstone in order to protect his friends and make peace, Right. And he's willing to give up his share of the wealth in order to do so. And the battle doesn't figure prominently in the overall narrative at all. It's just that action of Bilbo to say, hey, look, I'm willing to give up a 14th share of all the gold in this goddamn mountain to protect my friends first and foremost. And he, sa- he does say that in the movie where he's like... Uh, why would you do it when when um bard and thranduil ask him why he's doing this and he's like well i'm not i'm not doing it for you he's doing it to protect thorin and his friends right but he's willing to give all that up to make peace and i think that is the most important part where it's like this self-sacrificing nature and heroic nature of Bilbo, which is the most important bit of this whole thing. And that gets completely, I mean, it is emphasized, but it gets completely washed away in this two-hour unnecessary spectacle.
0: Just Legolas fighting, you know, save saving uh, Toriel and the, like, there were some from like an action movie purely, if you're just looking at it from that entertainment value, I guess it's fine for people who just want to see that but it it's not interesting at all and it made it worse that i was reading the book at the same time as i then watched this movie i'm like oh this just makes me mad
3: it feels like the battle scenes from lord of the rings without any of the stakes behind them
0: yes that's that's yes it feels like a useless battle where we are already kind of know there isn't really any so because smog is dead the only thing that could have happened, I guess, is that the orcs control the Misty Mountain.
1: These guys—they got rid of like the little solidarity. But towards the end, like before they were even fighting, from my what I remember in the book is that Thorin like changed minds, like okay, no, we can all like ally together to fight against this the, all the goblin, like the Goblin Harvey and Gold or whatever his name is. But then in the movie, they they were all separated. It was very like separationist. Everyone's fighting for their own good, like their own wills. There's a lot more solidarity in the books and they took that away. Yeah. For the sake of selling action to the viewers. Yeah.
0: Apparently Thorin, like the twelve of them die like not even twelve. There's only I think ten of them there. All like rushing to battle apparently turns the tide of the entire battle too. You know, ten 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 dwarves that tracks.
3: They're the ten most badass though. That's why. Yes. Yeah, I mean the, it, the expendables of the dwarves. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah.
0: And they also we didn't even mention this too, but they also changed some of like the deaths, the way that some of them happen. I think they also changed how Thorin dies too, if I'm not mistaken. They just kind of well,
2: of course, because Azog is not fucking
0: there. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah, I I I just kind of wrote like just the motives of the entire battle are not really like given to you either in the movie. I think it's maybe what you're saying, Mike, is that there's in the movies for the Lord of the Rings, you know, the stakes of losing. Whereas in this, there is no, they don't even try and give you a reason. It's just like, we're going to fight now.
3: Or at the very least, it's just not all of middle earth. It's not all of the race of men and elves and dwarves and all. It's like, eh, maybe what that town or whatever. It's like this gold, it's small, whatever. It's like, it's small stakes, small beans.
0: I did like, uh, Thranduil's, uh, what was it like his? The elk. The elk was pretty, that was pretty cool. Yeah. For. No, that was badass. Yeah. You know, he like rides through and like cuts off all their heads at the same time.
2: No, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a couple of cool scenes and everything like that. But like the message is, is that everybody, you know, Bilbo makes this sacrifice. Everybody unites around like this greater evil. And then some people realize the error of their ways and they make good on that at the end. And Thorin dies in the book feely and Keeley like die like basically preventing his body from being mutilated by orcs and that's how it goes
0: i feel like they also change sort of like the redemption arc of Thorin too between the book and the movie it's like a note that i wrote down I don't, now i'm trying to think if that's actually
2: i mean the, the introduction of like azog so prominently as like his main enemy really complicates it but i don't think the broad strokes change so much like where he died after a change of heart and he in a very similar way, you know, it's it's a different scene. It's a, it's a different scene. Like Bilbo wakes up after the battle is done and he sees Thorne in like his, uh, like basically a medic tent, you know, I I don't know that it changes his arc that much.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, One of the, like the few notes that I wrote for the third movie, I wrote something I wrote, well, I wrote down, why does Toriel have to live? Like, why don't they just kill her? Like, what's the point? Like, just die. Because she doesn't, she's Damn. not in the next movie. What <laughs> like, would I mean? I don't know. They didn't want to have her die. I wrote that. I also wrote, there was a quote. I don't remember who says it. Is it, I think it's Bilbo. He says, if more people valued home over gold, we'd live in a merry place. Was it Bilbo who says that?
2: I think Gandalf. Oh,
0: yeah, of course. He would say something like that. Oh, no, 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 no. I think Thorin says it on his deathbed. Oh, you're right. You're right. As he's lying on the ice, he says that. You're right. Yeah. Because I think it's when Bilbo has like a little moment with him before right. he dies.
3: it's has got to change human nature, bro. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, if, if all the, if all the uh, orcs and elves and everyone had their needs met, they wouldn't have to value their... No, we have to genocide the orcs. <clears throat> <laughs> just, That's just a
1: joking. fact.
2: <laughs>
0: no,
1: they literally can't think for themselves. They are like only made to follow directions because they're like a abomination because they're not like true creation. Yeah,
3: I didn't they're know they bots. were undead until you said that earlier in the episode, right? Thank you for that. I had no clue.
1: I'll have to like send like little charts in the books because it makes it make a lot more sense why they are the way they are. It shouldn't get any back that in the yeah. films, which is unfortunate.
2: I could be wrong. I don't know if they're like undead or they're just basically bastardizations of life, you know? Yeah. Because the way like Tolkien describes it in a lot of things, and I think it touches on it in Lord of the Rings, is that they're like basically like tortured versions of the elves, but like Melkor could never create – New life on its own. He just had to create like kind of twisted and mutilated versions of life. So they're not necessarily undead. I mean, again, I could be wrong in my understanding of it. No, I think
1: it's just where Tolkien pulled his inspiration from was right with the
0: necromancer. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's like you're not. You're not creating new life. You're twisting something that's already. I mean, he was breeding them, was. in like
0: in the Lord of the Rings, like there's the scenes where he's basically breeding them, right, to create like. woke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's also where but he I makes mean... the trolls that you can see that don't die in the sunlight, which they don't really explain that why those trolls die in the sunlight, but the other ones.
3: That's a good point. A they don't... Yeah, just doing a little e- eugenics, a little bit here and there.
2: That did always bother me, though. That's a good point. But, I mean, ultimately, the orcs are, you know, just brown shirts. <laughs> Not worth thinking about too much in terms of humanity.
0: Yeah, they. they I guess they show Bilbo going home is the... Wait, we skipped over a bunch. It doesn't need to necessarily be mentioned. They show him going home with his little... It's funny. They only show him going home with, like, a little chest of gold. Was that enough for him? Like, he already was, like, somewhat wealthy. Like, you think you said petty bourgeoisie, whatever hobbit
1: <laughs> but like is that
0: little chest of gold like is that all he got no right he gets a he whole got, lot like
1: a 13th of it but i think he had like a bank i'm assuming that banks were created at this time in like this weird like feudal mercantilist society and he just like had a running debt with them because for his birthday party he was just like amazon primed a bunch of gifts to give away with like his money <laughs> that he- <laughs> so that's always been mine or like people thought it was like hidden in its house because like in under hill they thought he did right i don't know Uh, you never answered that
2: i think the other bit of it was in the books was that and this goes back to the first one where they find that troll cave where they found the swords they also found some wealth there and they had buried some of their wealth in that troll cave and bilbo hit it up on the way back he did take a small chest but he hit up some oh, of that wealth okay. in the troll cave on the way back too. But still, like it is like implied in the lore that like or in the books that Bilbo was sitting on basically mountains full of wealth that you guys are talking right. about but it wasn't that much. And he was also like super free with his wealth like, you know, as hobbits are, like they give gifts instead of receiving gifts, I think is is the thing.
0: I mean mostly but, he was spending his money on, you know, food yeah, like nice, and good wine, good wines, ales, cheeses, and and the such. <laughs> yeah, the good life. Yeah,
1: and a Hobbit QVC. Like, oh, that looks good because I like to collect yeah. things. And when you I'll see not a bunch of shit to get rid of.
0: Yeah, they, I like how they show like all of like the uh, the the sack filled is It's like auctioning off all his shit, stealing his like at the like the, the very spoons. last scene is them stealing all his stuff. But like. Whether, you know, it's more explicit in Lord of the Rings
2: than it is in The Hobbit, but, like, you have to go out and fight evil in order to have that good fucking life. True. You have to face this shit because, like, that stuff is maybe not, like, apparent to you at the moment, but, like, if Smaug runs wild ultimately and he's never killed or never dealt with, what happens to the Shire, you know? Like, you need to go out and, like, you can't just, you know, live that good life forever there are going to be existential threats to your way of life. And at some point you need to take action to protect that.
3: That is dead on. Like, but it is in the most tidy way. Whereas in you just take care of the enemy one time, once and for all, and then they're gone until like the next time when they creep up slowly, but surely, but it's not an idea that can be in anyone who looks and acts like you. It's in these very clearly different creatures that we can, exterminate without feeling bad about it at all. And just like you guys were talking about Bilbo's wealth and how it's like kind of ambiguous, it's like, he always has the perfect amount of wealth, which is it's never going to run out, but he also is not extravagant. He doesn't have any kind of like gold things. He just has a lot of knickknacks. You could be a billionaire (laughs) hobbit, as long as all your wealth is in knickknacks and they don't seem like you're just being extravagant and eccentric or anything. Like, as long as you just have enough things that the Sackville Baggins could sell off after they take all your shit (laughs) and they are the bad people, even though they still by definition, have to have only knickknacks and even less of them because they're selling your shit. Like they can't ever be as rich as Bilbo was just by selling off his estate. So but they're still more evil, just not by virtue of the wealth they possess, just their character.
0: Bilbo would never uh, commandeer a sub and go to the bottom of the ocean.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Very topical.
2: (laughs) But you missed our more explicit references to that, Mike, I think. (laughs) Yeah,
0: sorry. I had to restart my computer there. My bad. No, it's cool i don't really have much to say about other to say about the third movie i mean i think we kind of were pretty explicit at the beginning is that the movie's good okay bad in terms of like their trajectory and i know you know given our system eventually these movies are all going to be remade because they only remake movies they don't make anything new some point in the future they're going to redo these i really hope that they redo the Hobbit specifically and maybe do it better i don't know how you could do it worse
2: yeah. My fear is that they'll do it worse though. I, 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 like, I don't want them to touch the Lord of the Rings. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't want it.
1: I only want those films and whatnot remade under like a socialist, economy. like where yeah. we have like the arts and we're doing, but if we're like in another, like further down later stage and tearing on society, I don't want it. I don't want to know what the things are going to be. I think it ain't gonna yeah. be good.
0: The the only thing I want from the Lord of the Rings I think it's coming up on the 30th no 25th anniversary there's supposed there's like rumors I sometimes see online of like a newer more scenes that have been cut from the originals that weren't like completely finished that they'll put into a, like an even like, oh, a like super, the
2: Schneider cut kind of version Yeah like a of, super
0: extended mm-hmm. edition where like the movie goes from 3 hours 20 to like I don't know whatever you know and I'll be fine I I, I would I would be okay with that I also would hate it. to see a remake of The Lord of the Rings. That would just be sad. See,
2: one thing that like I think some people would want to see but I don't want to see is Sauron coming out and fighting Ariorn at the Black Gate. Because that is something that they actually toyed with. And mm. I think that defeats the whole fucking purpose of the whole message of the movies.
0: Wait, didn't they film that? They did. Yeah.
2: And then they turned Sauron into a troll, which I think is correct move because it's not about like this final showdown between like the king and aragorn
3: soon to be king or
2: the the, yeah yeah right exactly heir apparent right so i don't know i know we're getting far from the hobbit at that but like it's just like but it gets to the point of like what capitalism is doing to the things that we love and what it wants to do to the things that we
3: love it's really sad, but the best you could hope for at this stage would be a series of the remake of Lord of the Rings, because it seems to be that whatever the way that the budgetary decisions are made between Hollywood movies and then like streaming series, the money goes to the the series as far as like quality productions. Whereas like you were saying, Evan, it's only remakes going into the theaters now. So pretty much you could hope for a Lord of the Rings remake of the movies now into a series, but and hope that they will cover all the material. I'll get a Tom Bombadil episode. I was gonna
2: say, where's the Tom Bombadil?
3: (laughs) (laughs) But like, it still won't be what you would hope because it will never be like up to Peter Jackson's originals back in the 2000s for, you know, nostalgia reasons, of course, but also just legit reasons because they will shoehorn in things that don't belong there. They will bring in topical references. They'll try to appeal to too many audiences at once and it won't work. Um, All the same things that are wrong with these when it just feels like, yeah, it feels smarmy and it feels saccharine. It's just not right. And that said, I, I agree with you, Ryan. I agree. You have to do it under a different kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like determining of the the profits of the production or else it's just not going to come out the right way because it doesn't work as a cash grab. You have to actually have the passion for it. That's why like, I legit get sad that there is a time where it will be like the last time I see The Lord of the Rings movies. Like, I don't know when that will be, but like, sometime in my life it will be the last time that I view those movies. And every time I watch them, I'm like, that's like a thought in the back of my mind because it's just so good. Like all three of them are so great and they're so pure because I feel like he was able to just do that. Like he, he got all the money at once. He was able to make all three of the movies and just do it the way he wanted without anybody bothering him. And you can't do that anymore. He, and neither him nor anyone else be able to, will be able to approach it with that kind of vision.
0: Yeah. I think if, Oh God. No,
2: I was just going to say like really quickly, you need a new superstructure in which to develop these things yeah, not not oh. just the base. The, the,
0: I think I, I think that if Peter Jackson had made was brought in originally to just make the Hobbit movies, they're like, okay, you did the first three Lord of the Rings. Forget del Toro. you're just gonna you're gonna be the one they brought in. I think these movies would have been different. I think that there was just who knows That's what happened point. behind good the point. scenes because I think he had to do with what he was given in some sense, and he had to they rewrote some of the script, supposedly. They rework things. They had to save money. That's why they had to do the stupid CGI nonsense for everything. So this is into the weeds, but everyone should read The Hobbit. This is one of those few times at the end of the, of the episode where I'm going to say, "Do you really need to see the movies?" Oh no. <laughs> I mean,
2: no. Just the first one. <laughs> and then okay. The books.
1: <laughs> Are you only ever need to watch them once, and you don't need to touch the extended edition? But once maybe The books, you're going to get a lot more of an impactful experience when it comes to a lot of characters. Yeah. I think they're a lot more likely.
3: I mean, you could probably read a synopsis, read the IMDb synopsis. Like you'll you'll get just as much out of it. Like other than a bunch of green screen special effects for at least the last two.
2: Yeah. I mean, my message with this whole thing is that like, and I mentioned it earlier uh, is I see a lot of like the right grabbing this shit because it like kind of represents like this pure European thing. And it's like, no, like this belongs to all of us. I'm not going to fucking cede this ground to this, which is why I'm so willing to put this out on my left wing podcast, my communist podcast, because like, I'm not giving this shit up to the right. And there's still a lot to be, you know, wrestled with and gained from in terms of just like how humanity can behave and how we can be better from this shit and I'm just not going to see any ground to these motherfuckers that want to take these things that I love from, from me.
3: I'm still holding out hope. I think that actually is a good thing. Like, like you're saying Nick and like you guys are like you're saying, right. I'm holding out hope for like fan fiction remakes of Lord of the Rings content. Cause I think that's probably the way to go, whether it takes the form of a, a game or it actually is some kind of online content, but maybe with, uh, God forbid AI making things easier as far as like at least production quality goes. Um, maybe more people will just be able to make this kind of stuff in their own rooms and hopefully it happens in a collective way where it's people working together and feeding off each other and taking the actual spirit of the Lord of the Rings content. And yeah, the only thing that would would make me paranoid in that situation would would be that the right would take hold of it more uh, just easily because it kind of leans in their direction and so I can imagine like a bunch of fourteen eighty eight nerds in a forum making a whole bunch of Lord of the Rings content because they really like it. Whereas left wing people are just like, eh, we don't need that old white dude shit. We can like find some other literature that we're going to create a universe around." So I could see either. I could see it going either way. I hope that Lord of the Rings content gets made by some hardcore fans with good politics. Uh, I would like to see that happening in the future.
1: Maybe we can push the means TV streaming server to do it because that's like oh, a leftist streaming service.
3: That'd be cool.
1: They could definitely do it. I just don't know if they have the budget.
0: Yeah, you'd have to do it in a way that would be you cheaper, buy,
1: like, but and
0: Yeah, really. I know. There, I, th- I think also there should be Marxist Tolkien just literature that doesn't really exist for the most part either. Just pry that away from the right, you could say like, "Look, here's our here's this content."
2: It would be interesting to like rewrite the history of middle earth in terms of a class conflict, because it's there. It's just not how tokens looking at it, but it still exists.
0: I got nothing left. We'll do. We'll bring you rings of the power in the future, perhaps before the second season comes out. I don't know when that is. I think it's next year. We've thanks for uh, having
2: seven. Yeah. It's fun, man. Nick, yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Nick from intervention, Mike left turn leftist and, and Rye. Thanks for sticking, sticking around for hours to bring the, the leftist Tolkien universe to the people.
2: Absolutely. Anytime, man. Of course.
0: You Uh, you can all uh, listen, follow, subscribe to Nick and Mike's podcast and get all the other links in the place where the links go. And we'll catch you next time.